It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Hey, I'm Erin Ryan, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. Today on the show, I talked to Betsy West and Julie Cohen, the creators of RBG, a documentary about the great Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I wanted to chat with them because I'm a big RBG stan, first of all, but secondly, the film is amazing and introduces an entirely new generation to an incredible figure. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, I am delighted to be joined in studio today with Julie Cohen and Betsy West, co-directors of the new film RBG, which is a documentary that traces the life and times of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Julie and Betsy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Good. Uh, I'm sure you guys have been doing a lot of press and a lot of uh, thinking about the film a lot. Um, And I'm sure you've been asked this question, but I would love to hear the answer. How did you decide to make this film? I know that you asked her years ago when she wasn't ready. How long was that process and what did it look like? Yeah. So, you know, RBG in recent years has become a real pop icon, even a rock star among millennials in particular. Uh, Betsy and I took note of that fact, and each of us had actually interviewed her in the past for uh, previous projects we'd done. So in January 2015, we just kind of got it in our heads, someone has to make a film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and why shouldn't it be us? So we wrote her an email, we made our request uh, that we should make a documentary about her life story, and she got back to us pretty quickly with an answer that basically said, "Eh, not yet. So uh, we were momentarily discouraged, and then we thought, well, not yet is not no. And uh, so we regrouped, and a couple months later, we went back to her with another proposal, which was, look, we don't need to talk to you right away, but um, we've assembled a list of your former clients, your former colleagues, your friends, people that we think would be important to help your life to help tell your life story. And uh, we'd like to proceed with that. And so we got an email back very quickly. She said, well, yes, I won't be available for you for an interview for at least two years. However, if you're going to be talking to people, you might also want to consider. And then she named three people. It was at that moment that we realized, okay, this is kind of a tentative okay approval. And we decided to go forward. Mm-hmm. You had um, really intimate access to her, to her life. There's a, there's a scene where she's going through her closet and showing you her various collars. Um, how did that intimacy progress with her? How did you start and how did you get to the point where you were standing there watching her work out in a super diva <laughs> yeah. sweatshirt? Yes. yes. Well, you, your question suggests the truth, which is that we didn't like jump into her office one day and say like, hey, let's <laughs> film you working out with your personal trainer. Like it was a one step at a time uh, process, starting with these interviews that weren't even of her, uh, progressing to her letting us film a number of events. Um, Some were public events where there were cameras, others were smaller, more intimate type things. And then ultimately the access with the 
uh, you know, full sit-down interview, as well as the more personal stuff, her at home with her granddaughter, her working out at the gym, her rehearsing for and performing in a speaking role as an op- in an op- opera at the Washington National Opera. Not too many people know that that's uh, something that the justice does in her quote-unquote spare time, but uh, she's a busy woman, and luckily for us, she let us film uh, a lot of it. You know, oh, we, were ner- we were a little nervous about asking her, so we went in to meet with her, uh, you know, really about six or seven months into the process, and uh, we showed her a little bit of a scene that we had cut using some phenomenal home movies of her and her husband when they were, uh, you know, very young, and... Um, I think she was taken with that. And at that moment, uh, we said, okay. And then we asked her for this access, including uh, going with her to following her into the gym, which mm-hmm. she agreed to do. <laughs> you mentioned the word spare time. Uh, my next question <laughs> is about how there are 24 hours in the day. I have the same amount of hours in my day, theoretically, as both Beyonce and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. What does Ruth Bader Ginsburg do? What was a typical day for her? How does she do all that she does? Yeah, you know, the Supreme Court is uh, a full-time, being a justice is more than a full-time job. They've got arguments to hear. They've got conferences where they meet with the other justices and decide where they stand. They've got opinions to write and dissents if you're uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. On top of that, um, she likes to do as much public speaking as she possibly can, which means really frequent engagements for women's groups, groups of lawyers, law school students, high school students, you know, so she's actually read read books to uh, elementary school students uh, in the past and, you know, going to the opera. It's just like, you know, when you stay up till two or three in the morning, there are more hours, I guess, in the day. Um, she often has to, on the weekdays, she certainly has to get to work early. Weekends, she's known for notoriously sleeping late. <laughs> yes. So take me through a typical day when you were shooting alongside of her. Like, what time was she waking up? What time was she at the gym? What time was she at work? Well, you know, we didn't exactly shoot uh, in that order. Mm-hmm. But I would say that on the weekends, uh, her day does start quite late, uh, maybe uh, one o'clock in the afternoon. We showed up at her apartment and she was spending some time with her granddaughter, Clara, uh, who had just graduated from law school. They were taking a look at pictures and, and basically just talking about all the changes that had happened since RBG was in law school and, um, you know, was a great student, but couldn't get a job when she, first of all, she was one of nine out of 500 at Harvard Law School. She gets out the top of her class at Columbia and and can't get a job uh, to her granddaughter uh, graduating and uh, where the class was 50-50 at Harvard. It was a very poignant scene. And then, you know, the day kind of went on from there. Uh, She, I know, was going to the opera later on. Mm -hmm. I think for her judicial day. She's got to be in the court early. She's got to be there at, often at nine o'clock in the morning. And um, she works, will we'll attend a performance in the evening and then come home and work. Wow. That is a, uh, sounds like an extremely full day. I'm getting tired just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned progress. You mentioned the progress from, you know, that there, there's archival photos in the film of what her class at Harvard looked like. And it's extremely striking. One of the most, I guess, standout moments of the film because she's just this tiny little she's, thing. I love that this, shot yeah. where you find her yeah, right, with this huge mass, mass of men. Of men. <laughs> yeah. And then there she, class. Is. there she is. Yeah. And her there small, she is. beautiful little, little face, face sort of shining out among that whole group of men. As she said, uh, she kind of had the feeling 
feeling uh, that she was constantly being watched, mm-hmm. that anything she said at cla- in class, she was supposed to be kind of speaking for all women. Like if she messed up, it was going to make it, it was just going to cement the view like, oh, women like don't know their stuff. So mm-hmm. she had to work, you know, two or three times as hard, but also that everyone was always looking at her. Mm-hmm. Now, she was extraordinarily beautiful. So <laughs> they were, you know, checking her out, I, I imagine, to a sense, but also like, she was a curiosity. What, what What is this woman doing at Harvard Law School? The dean of Harvard Law School asked asked the question of women, like, why are you taking the place that can be held by a man? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, too. I was I was thinking about her confirmation hearings, and it, it was in 1993, I believe. Yes, right. So watching her confirmation hearings, like, the 90s were pretty wild when it came to the way that we treated women publicly. You know, the way that we treated, as a society, we treated Monica Lewinsky, Tanya Harding, Lorena Bobbitt. We, it was a weird time for the way we treated women. But when you take a look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg's confirmation hearing, she's this tiny woman speaking to this huge group of men candidly and about her support for abortion. Now, I cannot imagine that happening in a confirmation hearing now. Um, but I can also see that being extremely uplifting and inspiring for women now. What do you think has changed between 1993 and now that makes it so that wouldn't be possible, but yet at the same time our society as a whole is so much more welcoming and kind to women? I just, I, I, I'm not sure, like, that was my, one of my main takeaways from the film. It's like she was this strong, like, beacon of, of feminism at a time when it was much more difficult to be a public feminist. Yeah, I mean, she has faced uh, real adversity throughout her career, starting with not being able to get a job when she graduates from law school. And then um, in the early 70s, she had the idea to uh, bring a series of cases in, in conjunction with a project at the ACLU. She brought a series of cases that really attacked the... the um, discrimination that was baked into so many laws in our country. Um, It was a radical idea back then. Hey, the U.S. Constitution ought to apply equally to men and women. Wow. But in fact, that was a kind of wow, because the men at the time really thought that they were protecting women. You know, their husbands ought to check out if they should take out a mortgage or not, or get a credit card, or why should they work overtime? That would be bad for them. There were just so many laws that were discriminatory, and she was able to show the male justices in the Supreme Court that this is just unfair under our Constitution. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you then go forward 20 years when she's doing her confirmation hearings, I think she had a sense of confidence because of what she had accomplished, which was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And at the hearings, she was presenting herself in a very forthright manner. Mm -hmm. And uh, the conservatives, Orrin Hatch was the Republican, uh, uh, the the chief Republican on the Judiciary Committee, and um, he said to her, look, I disagree with you on many things, but I admire you, and I think that you've earned a place on the Supreme Court. For whatever reason, that was a moment in time. Uh, but obviously, things change, and whether or not uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would be uh face that kind of a welcome at the Senate Judiciary Committee now, I think it's it's highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Orrin Hatch moment was extraordinary yeah. because he still seems to be a, a big supporter of her, even though he obviously disagrees with her intensely on a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
you know, part of the reason for that is that he likes her personally. They have they have a personal friendship. They've known each other for many years. He really, as you could see from the faces of the guys on the Judiciary Committee at that time, um, there was a lot of respect for her. This, like, very sharp, very intellectually tough woman kind of saying her piece, articulately explaining her legal career, which was already quite impressive at that time, and I- explaining where she was coming from really seemed to impress them. And, mm. you know, that's that, that, that's how Orrin Hatch, uh, that, that's why he thinks so highly of her and mm. continued to, even though obviously he doesn't agree with every opinion or dissent she's written over the years. And that has something to do with her striking 96 to 3 confirmation vote in the Senate. Yeah, that was an incredible moment. Let's talking about her personality and, and how well how well liked she is in the film. You also, you know, the people that you speak to in the film make a point that she's also very serious. She's serious and she's not necessarily bubbly or the life of the party. Um, and they, there's a mention uh, that they uh, they have a book called Mommy Laughed. Yeah, her children. Yeah, her, chil- her, her children, children had a book, a book called Mommy Ma- Laughed. Mommy Laughed. With parsimonious entries, her yes. daughter says. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that I, that I loved in the film was we get to watch Ruth Bader Ginsburg watch Kate McKinnon do an impression of her, and she laughs a lot. And I was wondering if you in, you experienced her laughing a, a bit, or if she's in in her later years kind of loosened up and and gotten more jovial. Perhaps she has loosened up a little bit in her later years. I mean, all of her friends, starting back from you know grammar school, talk about the fact that she was a kind of shy and retiring, though very charismatic person. And um, certainly when she married her husband, Marty, uh, she was attracted to somebody who was her opposite. He was a very outgoing, funny guy, and she was, uh, as uh, uh, one of her friends describes her, kind of recessive. But I think what Julie and I began to realize as we were doing this film, she has a very dry sense of humor. Mm. Uh, She appreciates being made to laugh. And um, we were extremely happy that her reaction to our showing her the Kate McKinnon impersonation, we didn't really, we didn't tell her we were going to show it to her. Her kids had told us that she doesn't watch television. So we're not (laughs) sure we'd seen, she'd seen it before. We're like, oh, we're going to show her this. And her, uh, once she realized what it was, she just burst out laughing. So yes, she has an extraordinary appreciation for humor and sense of humor herself. And uh, yeah, and, and you know, throughout the film, I, I don't want to do spoiler alerts by giving her jokes. Also, I don't have quite the same comic timing that she has, <laughs> which is quite... No, no, but but yeah. she, she gets in yeah. a lot of zingers, even when she's uh, in a situation. I mean, there's a good scene of her and Justice Scalia when he was still living, doing a talk together, actually one of the last talks they did together publicly. Everyone thought of him as a very witty guy and he was but like she gets the last and the loudest laugh yes. in that exchange and so. he loves it uh-huh. <laughs> it's very it's a very funny moment yeah she seems to connect with an extremely wide array of people uh, specifically millennial women as you point out in the film what specifically about her do you think connects with millennial women so strongly um i think that it is um what she stands for, the words that she's written, you know, her dissents are stinging and they're they're very clear. The language is um, just very appealing. And that was, 
I think, the beginning of her notoriety. Going forward, it's this idea of a very tiny, uh, elderly (laughs) Supreme Court justice in the serious robes who's really speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. You know, the Kate impersonation, the Kate McKinnon impersonation is a little outrageous. As her kids say, it's really nothing like mom. But there is a kernel of truth to that impersonation that, you know, as she says, I want to write in the majority, but if I have to, I will write in dissent. And she will say exactly uh, what she's thinking and stand up for her concept of our democracy. People like that. I think people, especially women right now with some of the battles that are still being fought, really like the idea of a woman and the fact that she's little and elderly helps, really like the idea of a woman who's going to stand up for herself, for other women, for equal rights, for those who haven't gotten rights in the past, you know, whether it be women, African-Americans, gays and lesbians, like she's just like she's standing up quietly. She's not yelling, but she's also not backing away and not shying away if, you know, if things are happening that, that she doesn't like. She'll write a dissent and it just feels like a strong response. And it is just some of the words that she's written have just really resonated with people. And then you've got this, the physical image of who she is, you know, this tiny little lady doing push-ups, like it's kind of awesome. Yeah. The, uh, there is a scene in the film, and I don't want to give away too much of it because everybody should see it. I just, I saw it and I actually started crying while I was watching it. Shock, like I was surprised by how emotional it made me feel. There's part where she's working out in a sweatshirt that says Super Diva on it. Do you know the backstory of that sweatshirt? Yes, we we believe that the uh, sweatshirt was given to her by the Washington National Opera, where several months before she had appeared in a speaking role. You know, she's a huge opera nut, really, a total super fan. And uh, they gave her that super diva. She she says in our film, you know, I wish I'd had the talent to be a great uh, (laughs) opera singer, but I don't. My talent is the law. Mm -hmm. And but, but now it comes around full circle with the opera telling her, but you are a diva. A super diva. It's a different kind of diva, <laughs> but you're a super diva. Yeah. And I think maybe the the emotion that comes from seeing her exercise, um, you know, people who like what she stands for, like seeing her continue to kind of continue the fight almost as a, a metaphor um, is quite something. And just the look of determination on her face while she's exercising that I just think echoes the determination that she's had throughout her entire career for every battle that she's faced. Like, there's something kind of moving about it. You don't think of like, oh, you know, I'll see an 85-year-old woman planking and that will make me weep. And yet (laughs) yet somehow, that's what happens. Somehow that's what happens. I mean, you know, she is 85 years old, but she has signed on her clerks for two more terms, which means... you noticed. Yes, Yes. which means that that she's she's planning on being there until at least 2020. So I don't want to prematurely assign a legacy to her. But given how many people that you spoke with whose lives she had touched, what do you see the trajectory of that legacy being? You know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg earned a place in history, even if she had not been a Supreme Court justice, for what she did uh, to make the U.S. Constitution apply to everyone in this country, men and women. I think that's probably uh, her her biggest legacy. And who knows in the future, she may also have a legacy for the dissents that she wrote and whether or not, you know, they may have an impact going Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. 
Um, are, is there anything that didn't make the film that you that it broke your heart that you had to cut out? You know, <laughs> truthfully, if we love something enough, we put it in the film. Uh, Betsy and I are, and our editor, Carla Gutierrez, like spent a lot of time debating and dis- dissecting and deciding what was in and what was out. Um, I will say, you know, so it wasn't like there was any footage or sound bites that we had that we feel terrible about leaving out. There are some things, there are some, there, there's a visual that we had wished we were able to find, but, but couldn't, which is that, um, of Justice Ginsburg parasailing. Yes. Uh, you <laughs> know, we, parasailed before? Yes. And, and, and recently. Um, yes. I believe well, she was in, in her 70s. Six, uh, I thought uh, she 60s, was, maybe. She maybe was, in her yes. 60s. Justice Scalia witnessed it. Oh, what? When they were at a judicial conference, <laughs> they had a spare moment. He witnessed it. And, and she went parasailing. Yep. Yes, and he was n- very nervous. Did yes. she wear her parasailing collar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe she should get one. All he could, he was standing, of course, he'd been offered to go parasailing too and had declined. And he's standing on the beach there just thinking, what oh my she goodness, <laughs> she's, she's <gonna> so <laughs> little, she's going to fly, fly away. away. Oh my goodness. I'm Erin Ryan, and we'll be back with more of my conversation with Betsy West and Julie Cohen right after this break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Everlane. By Everlane. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? No, No. what are you, a moron? No. No. We wouldn't. With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Lovett could use an Everlane t-shirt right now because he has a hole in the one he's wearing. Is that an Everlane t-shirt? No, it's not. It's from another company, and I tried to- it looks like shit. Looks like shit. <laughs> I tried to rip a tag out from the side because it was itching my haunches. <laughs> and uh, and uh, what are haunches? Um, uh, I'd rather not. I think it's, the, it's like a horse right at the back of the haunch. I think it was a haunch. Pass. Pass. I thought it'd be fun. Forward. <laughs> Everyone only makes premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials the without traditional is, markups. I tried to rip the tag out and then the tag stayed and a big hole opened up. Not going to happen you. Not going to happen with Everlane clothes. That's Quality. the point. Quality products. And they tell you they're real cost so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you they're real cost so you know you're never overpaying. You know what they say to uh, shirts that aren't made of the finest materials? What? Neverlane. <laughs> Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They're radically transparent about every step in their process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Sorry this shirt costs an extra dollar. Jerry wanted expensive coffee at the <laughs> office. You know? Too much kombucha. Yeah, this, this there's a kombucha month. markup on this one, but mostly they're cheap. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Check out the Cashmere Crew, the 100% human tee. Love the 100% human tee. Name, 100% human. human. The Twill Weekender bag, the Slim Feet jean. The slim feet gene. Fit? S- fit? No, it says feet. F-E-A-T. That's slim what, feet. Slim feet gene. The straight fit denim. Do they have booties? And like the men's Japanese Oxford. Who wrote this thing? Dr. Seuss? Everlane's timeless <laughs> essentials are just what huh? you're looking for. You need a snee or a snoo? We should write Their shirts come brand <laughs> new. <laughs> no frills, just quality. And right No now frills, no shills, said the cat with the bills. And right now you'll get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com slash crooked convos. Everlane.com slash crooked convos. That's everlane.com slash crooked convos. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by 1-800-Flowers. 1-800-Flowers. John, it's almost Mom's Day. Do you guys want to be <gasps> real for a minute? Please. Let's get. Uh, let's stop being polite and start getting real. If your big Mother's Day surprise consists of one well-crafted text message, mm. you need to go back to the drawing board ASAP. Yeah, good point. <laughs> 
Moms deserve more than just emojis. What? I'm just reading okay. what's here. Yeah, all right. I mean, that's true. Do it right this year and celebrate mom with this special limited time offer from 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, you can take care of all the mothers on your list. 1-800-Flowers will give you 24 multicolored roses plus a free vase for only $29.99. What do you think, uh, what do you think Melania is going to get for Mother's Day? I'm surprised you say vase, not vase. I sort Go of did, I did that for, aff- for, for affect. What do you think Melania is going to get? I Claire Foy over here. <laughs> <laughs> Melania, I think, is just going to get another day yeah. where she made it. I think she's getting an apology <laughs> yeah. and a surprise. Press a day this later. is still your life. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's uh, it's like ten hours till bedtime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The surprise for Melania is that uh, how long a day is. <laughs> you actually surprise. Four years feels like a lifetime. Surprise. <laughs> With a bright and beautiful surprise, mix of- <laughs> he won. He won, Melania. He anyway, won. Melania could use some flowers. With a bright and beautiful mix of premium roses and a rainbow of colors, these blooms are guaranteed to make her smile. Multicolored roses are the perfect way to surprise all of the moms in your life: wife, aunt, sister, grandma. These breathtaking roses from One Hundred Flowers are picked at their peak and if, shipped um, overnight to ensure freshness. John, yes, John. If uh, if the announcer from the from the uh, old video game NBA Jams hmm. got his mom flowers he would say bloom shakalaka <laughs> he's, he's on heating fire up, <laughs> heating up <laughs> 20 24 multicolored roses plus a free vase for only 29.99 is an amazing offer but bloom hurry. shakalaka <laughs> but hurry because it expires soon just pick your delivery date and 1-800-Flowers will handle the rest don't put this off order today from 1-800-Flowers.com it's what mom would want you to do to order 24 multicolored roses plus a free vase for only 29.99 go to 1-800-Flowers.com click the radio icon and enter code CONVOS code Convos. is bloom shakalaka <laughs> that's 1-800-Flowers.com code bloom shakalaka no it's not it's CONVOS CONVOS it's one thing falling in love with a house picturing yourself moving in and calling it home and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. So there's a lot in the film, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg has lived a lot of life. What parts of her life do you wish that you could have included more in? Well, you know, we feel pretty good about what's in the film and what's not. There is an interesting episode that didn't fit in so much with our, you know, what the filmmakers would call our narrative arc, which is that um, as a young lawyer, she actually had a brief stint where she went off to Sweden Uh, She was offered the opportunity to write a textbook. It had to do with comparative law, and she was studying uh, Swedish civil procedure. Um, She learned Swedish. Uh, She went to Sweden, and um, that's a hard language. Quite quite well, you know, not when you're as smart as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, apparently. Oh my goodness! So she went to Sweden. How long was she in Sweden? You know, some months. She did have a, a young daughter at the time, so her. Fabulous feminist husband Marty was home taking care of their daughter, and um, yeah, she she learned Sweden Swedish, and she also took note. This was in the early 1960s of the way Swedish women 
uh, had many more opportunities at that time in the workplace, but how they were beginning to fight back that they actually had two jobs, not one, because they would be working and then they'd come home and they'd have to take care of their families. Mm-hmm. At that time, uh, that that was the practice in Sweden and the women were beginning to push back on that. So it was sort of a precursor to the women's movement here, which in the late 60s helped propel Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, legal career. Mm-hmm. One other thing that's really interesting that you, you talk a lot about in the film is how she and her husband, Marty, so reinforced each other. Do you, I mean, as I was watching it, I, I was thinking this is one of the greatest love stories that I've ever seen. Yes. I mean, we like to call it sort of the great feminist love story of of the uh, 20th century um, into the 21st. Uh, Marty Ginsburg, from the time that he met Ruth Bader when they were both undergraduates at Cornell, just uh, cared about her, as she says, for her brain. He cared that she had a brain. He noticed that she had a brain. As women know even now, sometimes it's hard to get a man to notice uh, that that aspect of you. She was an extraordinarily beautiful young woman. Uh, she had dates out the wazoo, as she explains uh, in the film. <laughs> but, um, you know, but Marty was something special. He was willing to, he, he knew his wife was brilliant. He was proud of it. Mm-hmm. Not threatened at all. And as as their careers together, he was also a very successful lawyer. He was a tax lawyer. But as their careers moved forward, uh, he stepped back a little bit in order to help her achieve what he knew she could. I think at a certain point he said to himself, hey, she could be a Supreme Court justice. She is so smart. And what she is doing now for in the Supreme Court as a litigator is worthy of someone who should be on our court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fascinating also the, the anecdotes of him showing up to work and saying, Ruth, it's time to come home. You need yeah. to stop working. You need to come yes. home. Yeah. And she needed that. I mean, this is a woman who's so driven and, you know, ambitious for herself, but more than that, ambitious towards what she wanted to achieve for in the law and for women's equality, uh, that she might have worked, you know, <laughs> till dawn if she didn't have a husband saying, no, no, you know, you've got to come home and have dinner. You've got to get some rest. I mean, you know, we all need that. And he served that function for her beautifully. Um, do you find that, you know, young women are obviously inspired by Ruth Bader Ginsburg for obvious reasons. Do you find that young men are also inspired by her? Yes, I think um, that many men find the story really eye-opening, especially the um, extent of discrimination against women Mm -hmm. back in the 60s and 70s. I think many of us have forgotten about this and how women really were second-class citizens. I think that's an eye-opener for a lot of men. You know, I think that the connection may be a little more stronger emotionally for the women who are watching this film because... It is very moving to see this woman who was up against so much and just didn't give up. She didn't give in to her anger. She figured out a way to uh, to fight the obstacles that she was facing. And in the course of that, she helped all of us. So how can you not be a little bit emotional about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's sort of a, a living patron saint of feminism, <laughs> isn't she? Um, do you see any women who are in the in a generation or two beyond, behind Ruth Bader Ginsburg who are sort of her heir parents, or is she just one of a kind? They broke the mold when they made her. Yeah, I'm not thinking I would I would certainly be doing someone a great favor to say that, that this is uh <laughs> this is this decade's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm not immediately thinking of of someone. I mean, you know, each generation is different and I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg was so much a product 
of the obstacles that she faced, that she was breaking, you know, she was breaking ceilings. I mean, never mind even breaking glass ceilings. She was like breaking doors down to sort of even get in the room. Um, the battles that remain to be fought, and certainly there are many, are a little bit different now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think I can, I can give uh, an heir apparent. Also, her, her style of pushing forth without apparent anger and vitriol is actually un- unusual for an activist of any generation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she does have a stoicism about her. That's it's very Swedish, actually, when you well, think about it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's stoicism or maybe it's optimism. Yeah. Do you know? I think she sees the long game. She is 85 years old and she'll say, look, uh, things may seem bad or discouraging now, but look how far we've come. And uh, she does have a kind of optimistic uh, point of view mm-hmm. and practical Mm-hmm. Like, just think about how to change things. If you're upset about them, try to figure out what you can do practically to fix them. Mm-hmm. And she did do a really incredible job of navigating the current social situation that she was in, like changing uh, the word sex to gender when she was yes. first arguing in front of yes, the Supreme Court. Yes, that was her secretary's suggestion, right. which we just love. You know, that's not a story in the film, but it's kind of sweet. Her secretary is typing all of these briefs all the time. So you keep mentioning the word sex, 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 sex discrimination, just you know, that has a connotation for the male justices. Why don't you use the right. word men, gender? Men, men are going to find that word distracting. Yeah. Why not Why not pick a, why not pick a word that's not going to throw everyone off track? And gender uh, did the trick. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Julie Cohen, Betsy West, co-directors of RBG forthcoming film coming out on May 4th. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We'll have another Crooked Conversation for you next week, so tune in. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.